I honestly, after this list went up, I, I thought I was going to need like witness protection. I just, I had no idea that people cared so much about breakfast burritos, but all sorts of people, mostly transplants from other states, came out of the woodwork. Like, no one was happy about this. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Luke Fortney is a reporter at Eater New York, where he keeps an eagle eye on openings and closings, plus trends like the city's burgeoning breakfast burrito scene. We had him on the show to talk about what it's like staying on top of New York's ever-evolving dining landscape. Whether you live in the city or you're just thinking about taking a trip here, it's a must-listen. Also on the show, Matt catches up with British cookbook author, journalist, and chef Ravinger Bogle to speak about her great new book, Comfort and Joy, Irresistible Pleasures from a Vegetarian Kitchen. Luke Fortney, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, Eliza. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to get to interrogate you because you're somebody that, you know, I get to see around and we're always catching up, but I don't really feel like I get to dig deep into your job and you have such a cool one. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Um, But I guess I have to know, like, what have you eaten today? Have you eaten in any restaurants today? Okay. So I have had three lunches today. Well, I think... For some people, that sounds really exciting, and it is, but I think around, like, halfway through the first lunch, you know there's two more coming, and you're just like, there's no way I'm going to get through this. So Uh, wait, tell me, what's the strategy for stacking three lunches? Do you try to go from what you think is the lightest to the heaviest, or is it geographical? So today I was like, how do I end up near Eliza? Um, And so I started down in Union Square, um, thankfully everything today was pretty light. It was two Hainan chicken rices, like a poached chicken over rice kind of situation. So and, good. And that so good. So good. And also like pretty light, like rice, you know, fills you up, but yeah, I feel like it's a, a clear broth. Like it feels kind of nourishing. It's not that greasy necessarily. Yeah, totally. And then after that, uh, I kind of knocked myself out with a goat biryani that I offered you in the elevator. Which I'm going to eat when we're done. <laughs> and that was great. That was over in um, in Hell's Kitchen. But uh, I feel like when I eat more than one meal back to back to back, I usually am like trying to maybe eat a third of the food. And then we'll either like give it to a friend or like keep it for later and pile it in my fridge. But um, yeah, I feel like rarely do I eat the whole like three lunches. Yeah, I think it's good to pace yourself and to be keeping it for your future you. I guess I'm wondering, like, how often are you eating three lunches in a week? Do you kind of block your eating out or is it always happening? I feel like breakfast and lunch are the worst offenders because um, it's just a little bit easier. A lot of it is like grab and go situations. You can bounce around to a couple of spots. Maybe it's more casual. Uh, This happens more often than I like to admit. But dinner, I feel like, is the safe zone. Like, very rarely do I have more than one dinner because you're, like, sitting down for the night, maybe. Um, And it's kind of hard to, like, do that two times in a row with, like, reservations and all that anyways. Yeah, I also feel like maybe you will eat any meal alone, but I think for me, I'm more often to be doing, like, a solo breakfast or lunch, so it's easier to kind of bop around, whereas if you're having all of your friends meet you for dinner, going to three might be tougher to wrangle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like this is this is so weird, and I feel like people who maybe don't write about food don't don't realize this, but, like, I eat probably, like, at least half of my meals alone, and I mean, are we ever alone? You know, I feel like I'll like, talk to people in there and like try and get stuff for a story or just like make a friend. But um, yeah, like all, all the meals I had today was just sort of like me and like texting my mom in the corner of a restaurant. <laughs> and what's your strategy when you're going and you're, you know, maybe doing something for a story? Do you take notes while you're eating? Do you take reference photos? Are you trying to be low key or does not not really matter anymore? Yeah, I feel like. A lot of the restaurants that I go to, like, they probably don't have a publicist. They 
might not know what eater is and like i feel like that is an amazing thing like i i like i i think very rarely do i walk in somewhere and i'm like they're like that's luke fordney which is which is great you know i'm i'm not like a food celebrity or anything but aside from that like it's just the the service can change so much as soon as someone knows what you do and um I'm trying to have an experience like if someone were to just like walk into a restaurant and, um, you know, like just trying to have that like sort of like normal restaurant dining experience. Definitely. So yeah. you were talking about these restaurants that you say don't necessarily have a publicist. So how are you finding them? Yeah. It, so this is kind of weird. I've never said this out loud, but uh, I feel like so many of the restaurants that I find these days, I find on TikTok. <laughs> which is just so dun, dun. Dun, dun, he admits it um i feel like it's a weird thing uh and there's a couple things going on one it's like every 22 year old nyu student has a phone and like you know like people are just like seeking out restaurants or like someone will like notice something new opens in their neighborhood and like hold up their phone to it and and then, like, me sitting on my couch in Crown Heights, like, two miles away, will watch it and then be like, oh, that looks interesting. But, yeah, so much of the restaurants that I that I learn about now happen outside of, like, you know, quotes, traditional food publications. Right. So let's say you're scrolling and you see a video. What are some indicators that you think you're going to like that creator's taste, especially if there's someone that's maybe not as, like, polished and well-known? Yeah, it's it's like so funny because I feel like a lot of times it really is like someone I've never heard of. I have no idea who they are. Um, usually the way they're talking about the food too sort of insinuates they're not from New York. You know, they might say like, oh, this is like the only or this is the best. Like a lot of hyperboles that as a restaurant reporter, you sort of know aren't true. But you're still interested because you're like, Maybe for me, usually it's like I'll see a dish and I'm like, oh, I haven't really like seen that around. Or maybe that's like hard to find outside of like Queens or the Bronx. Um, And then it's like showing up in like a Manhattan food hall or something. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? But yeah, it's really hard to know because like anyone can post a video now. Right. And I feel like um, when it's someone that's like a recipe developer, like there's this guy, Chucky Cruz, that I follow, who the algorithm gave me recently. His music taste is so good. There is like a De La Soul instrumental on the one that I first started watching. And immediately, this is maybe me just putting too much like vested interest into music taste. But I was like, oh, I know I'm going to like this dish composition because I like your taste in something else. But the way that people communicate information on TikTok with trending audio or other kind of like gimmicky things like taste... Sometimes it comes across and sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't because it's just somebody that happened to like live near a new restaurant that like they went to. Yeah, it's so true. That's really funny about the music. I haven't I wasn't even thinking about that, but it it is really true. Like my favorite food videos like very rarely have audio like I'm totally into like hearing chewing sounds and like like listening to someone slurp a miso soup, you know, Um but yeah, I, I I feel like I am also a sucker for like a good voiceover, you know, like, yeah, don't need to see the person just like, like the cool thing about video, right? Is like, it's so I don't I, I feel like I'm like making a point. like It's so raw, but it's like, cool, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about video is no, the thing about videos, it's like, it's just so like, there's no hiding behind like a glossy, expensive camera, you know? It's like the iPhone that a lot of us have in our pockets. Yeah, and does the food look good or does it not? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of your job is monitoring the openings and closings and pop-uppings that are happening in the city and follows a big time for dining. I'm curious, like, where are you trying to go eat, especially some of the newer spots that you think are worth kind of trying to get to sooner rather than later? Yeah, this is a this is a tricky question. Um, I feel like we're in a kind of weird we're in a kind of weird spot with with restaurants right now. Yeah. I I know this isn't what you asked, but like I I feel like we're in a weird spot with the restaurants because in a lot of ways I think that people are still coming back from the pandemic. Like so much was lost, like physical spaces and and money, of course, and 
so many things that like I feel like we're seeing like a lot of French food, a lot of like small plates, wine bars, like fish, a lot of fish, a lot of olive oil. You know, it's like a lot of the same. And that's like a total oversimplification. But um, I feel like it's it's and also food has just gotten so expensive. One restaurant that I really that I really uh, loved that I went to recently was uh, Lingo in Greenpoint. This this place has been open for a couple of months now, um, but it is like a Japanese American like you know food restaurant um, on that like little strip down by Transmitter Park, mm-hmm. and it just serves like you know you walk in and you look at the menu and like the menu item name is like cabbage and then like the dish comes out and it's just like all like everything just like has so many surprises and I feel like that has been so done but it's just it really just was like a a delicious dining experience what do you mean by surprises I mean like okay there was this dish that I had it was a and this was a couple of weeks ago but there's this dish that I had it was like a meat pie you know like a like ceramic container mm-hmm. and then like the pastry over the top. Mm-hmm. I had never had one of these. And um, you'd never had a pot pie before? Pot pie, thank you. I, I don't think I had had a pot pie in a in a New York restaurant before. I, I was gonna say, aren't you from the the Midwest, right? Okay. I <laughs> California. California. But, but by way of the Midwest. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We do have those out there, but I, I don't think it's ever something that I had seen on a restaurant menu and be like, I really am like fiending for a pot pie right now. Oh, I love pot pie. But okay, I'm, okay you had this. You experience. gotta get to lingo then. I clearly okay. So you ordered this pot pie. They have this pot pie, and then you crack the surface of the pastry and it's full of curry and it's just this like um, it's, a, it's a japanese curry pot pie yeah i literally oh my god i'm so excited We're going right after this no i literally two nights ago i was making japanese golden instant curry with uh vegetables and i put in like some korean rice cakes because that what i that's what i had but i had just eaten a pot pie and i wrote down in my notes app Japanese curry pot pie question mark so clearly it's being done and done well which makes me excited to go eat it wow okay I love that sorry that was a tangent no. but I'm so excited about that anyways yeah it's just you, you crack open the the crust and there's like a big sea of golden curry it's amazing but you like look at the menu and it's like pot pie and you're like it might it might say curry pot pie you know we might need to fact check this mm-hmm. but um yeah it's just one of those restaurants that like sort of restored my hope in I I don't know if we can use this word but like like fuse fusion cuisines it's it's kind of like the like blank like it's like kind of like these comforting like midwestern foods plus and like other foods plus like japanese flavors and ingredients um yeah it was just a really wonderful experience and I I haven't seen a ton ton written about them um so I, I would recommend checking them out. Okay, so Luke, when you're going out to eat, what are you looking for? What do you think is going to make a good story? That's a great question. It's so funny. This is something that I, it's almost like a sixth sense, you know, where you just are walking down the street or again, scrolling through TikTok and you just like see something that you're like, what is this doing here? A lot of times I look for maybe like a dish or a cuisine that is maybe underrepresented or hasn't been for whatever reason, like even if it's been around, like hasn't been as popular, like people haven't been into it Um, or not people haven't been into it, but like maybe it hasn't had this like full moment. And then suddenly it's like all anyone can talk about. Mm, Um, Like the breakfast burrito roundup that you wrote recently. Yeah. Like it just like hits a, like a, fever pitch and you're like oh like this is something that like gets people excited and in the case of that breakfast burrito article angry yeah you know let's talk about breakfast burritos because you grew up eating them in some ways I would imagine yeah what's your like background with breakfast burritos and how did you bring that into doing that story okay so when I moved to New York City from California five years ago uh one of the first things I noticed when I moved here five years ago is just that the burrito scene feels 
way behind. Like a lot of people were using tortillas that maybe they bought at the store or maybe that they got from their food distributor. But out in California, a lot of the tortillas that we got were, you know, maybe made in the kitchen or like if they're bought at the store, like the quality is a lot higher just because of the proximity to the border. And so I moved here and I was like, why is it so hard to find a a good burrito? Um, And this is just something that like, you know, when you grow up in any other place, like I feel like everyone has this story, right? Like what is the thing you love that you can't find in New York City? Mm -hmm. The city that like supposedly has it all. Yeah. Or that's harder to find. Or harder to find. And like for me, that was burritos and, um, and breakfast burritos more specifically. Right. And where did you grow up in California? Okay. I grew up in <sighs> Orange County, California. <laughs> I was like, why the big inhale? What's it's you okay. Say? No, I mean, people are from Orange. I can't say I'm from LA. So, you know, we have our, our differences, but I don't personally have any grudge with Orange County. Mm. You know? And I imagine you grew up eating good burritos there, right? Yeah. I feel like it was, it was being so close to San Diego, which is such a burrito city. And you're from a Mexican-American family also, right? Yeah. On my dad's side. Yeah. Yeah. So so what was the burrito you were looking for when you moved to New York? And what is the burrito that you now hold dear at five years in and that we've hit this kind of burrito, um, burgeoning burrito scene? Yeah. So for me, the burrito that I would eat the most was from this place. They had a few locations, at least when I was growing up, called Pedro's Tacos. It was like, I, I'm not even sure that I could say in good faith that it was good. But it was just there, and it was on the way to the beach. And we would go and pick up a couple of burritos. They had, like, the greasiest hash browns that would, like, leak through the tortilla every time. And um, they'd come in these, like, little aluminum foil wrappers, and you could eat, like, three of them because they were a little smaller. Mm -hmm. Um, It was great. And you'd just, like, go and sit on the beach and, like, eat them and eat, like, sand and, you know, stuff that would get in them. It's, like, one of those just experiences that— that is so hard to replicate somewhere else. Um, here, for me, I feel like I I still haven't found, like, that same thing where the stars align with, like, low-cost, like, small, and also, like, just kind of, kind of, like, feels like fast food with love almost, you know? Um I haven't really been able to find something like that here. And, and you know, I maybe maybe it's just like I'm I'm nostalgic for that specific experience. But yeah, I do um, think nostalgia is the one factor that you can never get in a new place. Yeah. But what, who did you give the number one ranking to? And then why was it controversial? Oh, OK. So I gave the number one ranking to Super Burrito, which is a restaurant uh, in Rockaway Beach. And now they have another location in Williamsburg. Um. I honestly, after this list went up, I I thought I was going to need like witness protection um, (laughs) support. Like, like after this went up, I just I had no idea that people cared so much about about breakfast burritos. But all sorts of people, mostly transplants from other states, came out of the woodwork and um, like no one was happy about this. Uh, I think because everyone has their own favorite that they've sort of put their weight behind. Yeah, like were the people unanimous in saying, oh, this one place should get the spot or everyone was just hyping up their their favorite spot? There was a couple of big names. There was Ursula in Bed-Stuy. That's, Which was on the list, right? Uh, it, was, it was on the list. There was Ceremonia Bake Shop, which is like two blocks from Super Burrito. That was a really, really popular one. But but yeah, it it wasn't like this unified front. It was like what you're saying. Like people yeah. were like, "This is my one." And honestly, if I were to guess, I think that people had probably only tried that one. And you not know? tried, not had three lunches in a day. <laughs> <laughs> not had three lunches in a day, which is totally okay. No one needs to do that. That's- yeah. So for the burrito story, did you eat all the burritos back to back, or did you try to space them out? I did a couple of them back to back or sometimes even like side by side if oh, they were cool. in like a block of one another. It gets a little tricky because you're like the one you're transporting is like in my, you know, tote bag for like five minutes and 
you know, but but hopefully a burrito should be able to Five withstand that. I want to ask you about another story you wrote recently that I really liked, which was about all of the like weed bodegas around the city that sell um, like imported snacks as like a main part of their business, because anyone walking around Brooklyn would see these. And I've been wondering about them for so long. So I'm curious about like how you came up with that story idea and what the reporting process was like for you. Yeah, this one was uh this was a really tough story to report. One, no one wants to talk to you for something like this. Yeah. Um, the, because the, they're not legitimate businesses, legally speaking. Yeah, legally speaking. And and, and I, I, I'm sure anyone that I approach is going to be like, I don't want to talk to you. Like even really anonymously, just they're so worried that like about anything that would draw attention to them Mm -hmm. um, in like a big sort of citywide sense. The idea for this story started while walking around in Williamsburg where there's um, a couple of these stores along Bedford Avenue there and they have all sorts of different names like, you know, something exotics, like something Zaza, like just all every different name for weed you can imagine. Loud noise. Is on a storefront there. Yeah. And then tell me about, like, for someone that doesn't know what we're talking about, like, what kind of snacks would you see in the window at these places? Yeah. So I I don't smoke weed. I'll say that on the record right now. But I would be walking by these stores and, like, in the window, you see bags of chips and flavors of Oreo and Pocky and different snacks whose flavors are written in other languages. And you're like, huh, that's kind of funny. Like that reporter thing goes off in your brain where you're like, weed plus roast fish flavored lays? Like what's going on here? (laughs) And so I would go in and I'd ask them and just like not as a reporter, just like as kind of like a person walking through the street and I'd be like, why do you sell like, yeah, like roast fish flavored lays? And like, the range of answers was just so, so wide, but ultimately people were like, I need something to sell that isn't marijuana. Yeah. And it's signifying that you're not one of the like, quote unquote, normal bodegas that sell, um, you know, like Lay's barbecue chips and like the ones that you would come to expect. It's kind of like flagging almost with snacks. Yeah. Because it, it was so funny in, in writing out this story. One thing that was unexpected to me is that like while I'd be in there looking around or talking to people, there were so many customers who came in just for snacks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'd see like a mom and their maybe 20-something-year-old kid come in and like pick out some banana-flavored chips. And I'm sure they realized what was happening around them, but like they were just there for like snacks. Right. Do you have a sense of, like, was the cost per snack much higher at one of those places compared to if you were at, like, an Asian grocery store and they were selling Pocky, for example? Yeah. I th- – that's a that's a great question. I'm trying to think about that because when I would go in there and buy snacks, like, I usually would leave having spent, like, $15 on, like, two or three bags of chips, mm. which – Seems a little high. To me feels kind of high. <laughs> um, and – when I would talk to people, they're like about why a bag of chips costs six, seven dollars. You know, they they had the whole story of well, I am, my friend sent this to me from Japan, and then there's right. all the costs associated with that. So they're not using like the big scale distributors um, that like a large grocery store would be using to get the same snacks. Yeah, there's kind of this like black market of imported snacks happening. Yeah, why does that sound so familiar to this situation? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's like, okay, wait, if why sell one thing that we're not allowed to do when we could have two? Yeah, or just, you know, maybe the, the method of it getting there is a little under the books. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's so fun, and I think um, it says a lot about, like, the variety of things that you can write about in the context of food in New York to have a story like that. Yeah, it definitely was—I'd been sitting on that story, honestly, for about a year, and I was finally spurred to action just by everything that's happening right now around, like, the enforcement, around the illegal— Weed stores. I, I just feel like we're, we've really hit a point where, like, I, you know, pull up the New York Times and, like, every other day I feel like there's a story about 
you know, like enforcement and city officials are like, we don't know what to do because they're like really in every neighborhood now. Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting because I grew up in Los Angeles where, you know, weed was legalized. I mean, very widely medically and then recreationally. And it's a very different infrastructure. And I think that um, in New York, it's kind of like, oh, who knows where this came from? Like when I go buy weed on the West Coast, they're like telling me about the terpenes and where something was grown and things that like I don't even have the knowledge for because I haven't lived there in so long. And then you go here and like they don't even know what farm it's from. Like they don't know what is happening. Dude, I know. It's like they know the like they know exactly where their chips came from. They're like, oh, this came from like Bangkok, but they like can't say where their weed came from. Oh, and one thing you're like smoking and inhaling <laughs> and the other one you're eating. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I guess I'm curious, like talking about restaurants and pop-ups and how everything exists in the city, like, is there a trend that you'd like to see more of? And is there maybe another trend that you're kind of over? Yeah, I think I am just about done with small plates meant for sharing. And that is capital S P M T S. Do I got that right? Yes. Capital small placement for sharing. Yes, Smimps. Um, (laughs) Because why? You don't want to share anymore? I'm I'm done sharing. No, but I I mean, well, I am an only child. Oh. (laughs) So, you know, sharing was never really a skill that I that I learned. But but actually, like when you get a like palm sized dish and there's like three pieces of hamachi crudo on there. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is this is for your table of eight. You're kind of like, you know, you're suddenly like dissecting a small piece of of raw fish at the table. But I really would love to see more large plates meant for eating alone. (laughs) Like like I think you you probably know from California, like I feel like you would go into a Mexican restaurant and get this like big platter that had everything you oh, needed yeah that like weighs down the whole table yeah rice and beans for sure there's like a free side of chips that comes too you have your like protein and like everything is there combo platter combo platter more combo platters more combo platters like or whatever like i feel like every culture has some version of this um like last night i was at a japanese restaurant I was at a Japanese restaurant in Greenpoint, um, and a they, different one. A different one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> different one. No pot pie with curry here. Um, it was in the back of Dashi Okume, which is like a dashi shop. Oh, the build your own dashi shop. Yeah. Yeah, and in behind that, they have this grilled fish counter where you can go and just order like a grilled fish, and it comes out with soup and mm. rice and these small side dishes. But it's like. This would be impossible to share. And, um, and there's no pretense that you have to. Yeah. It's like really just like you, it's like you eating there. And like, I wasn't surprised, but like there were so many people there eating alone. It was really kind of heartening to see in a way. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I, I think I like this idea of like, you know, everything is just like there for you and all you have to do is eat and doesn't like require that much thinking. You just kind of sit there and enjoy your meal, which I feel like has just become so rare recently. Yeah, that that's a really nice sentiment. I, I'm going to hold that. I feel like for me, going out to eat has become kind of like fraught sometimes since I've been cooking more at home. But I like the idea of just going to have a, I don't have to worry about anyone else or getting a table. You can just be by yourself. Yeah, yeah. You can be by yourself. Um, With your food. With your food, it's like, it's so, I mean, it's uh, one of my coworkers in Boston, Erica Adams, she wrote something really poignant about this, but she's like, you know, the act of going out to eat is such a, like always involves compromise, you know, like with the people you're dining with. And it's like, where are we going to eat? What are we going to order? Like, what time is good for you? What time works? Yeah. And eating alone is like, just like all about you. It's just like so indulgent. Yeah. That's fun to have. So you eat at so many different kinds of places. I'm curious, like, if you could have a menu item named after you at any kind of place, so, like, an ice cream shop, a bar, sandwich place, what would it be? And then do you know what would be inside of it? 
Yeah, it would be a hamachi crudo with three pieces for eight people. Um, and just a huge chunk of burrata on yeah. top. <laughs> yeah. Some olive oil. Yeah, some olive oil would be great. Um, I think I think it would be a mezcal martini. Um, did that go through? Yeah, mezcal okay. martini. A mezcal martini or a tequila martini. Um, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. It's... It's a cocktail I, I had. Um, there's this restaurant up in Leeds called Casa Susana. They have, like, a perfect tequila martini on the menu. It's so weird, and it comes with, like, a little twist of, like, lime. Um, but it works somehow. And I just feel like this is something that I've ordered probably like two dozen times at restaurants and bars across the city and everyone hates it and is like, we can't do that, but okay, we'll try. And it's usually horrible. But like, I would just love if one person could get this drink right. You don't even have to name it after me. I mean, you could, but um, yeah, that's something that I think about. That's something I think about probably once a week. Yeah, I did an actual double take when you said that because I've never had one before. And I mezcal and tequila are like my default liquors of choice. So I get a mezcal Negroni is probably my go-to drink, you know? Yeah. Have you asked the Casa Susana people about why theirs is so good? I did not. But when I ordered it, I I, like all the ingredients are there on the menu. Mm. And it's like three lines of things and there's like liqueurs in there and oh it's like a whole like oh I, and people in new york are probably just giving you like, like hell no <laughs> <laughs> no wonder it's not working out for you they're like we do not want to make this so i i feel like this would really take someone this this would be a labor of love from okay. from someone who either loved me or loved tequila and vermouth yeah. Are there one? Yeah. Well, I hope that you get to have it again someday, and I hope that I get to try it too because it sounds really good. Yeah. I feel like it would pair well with a beef pot pie. Ooh, yeah. Let's do it. Okay. And you know, like, this is taste. We're asking you about your taste. I want to play a little rapid-fire taste check with you. So okay. I'll tell you, like, a category or a question, and you tell me the first thing that just pops into your head. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Um, Go to Bodega Snack. Bodega snack, chicken over rice. Go to weed bodega snack. Weed bodega snack, hot pot flavored Lay's. Go to bagel order. Probably a sausage, egg, and cheese on a sesame bagel, untoasted. Untoasted? Untoasted. Okay, I have to ask why. Um, You know, that's a, that's a good question. I feel like as like a new, uh, California transplant, I just like never asked for a toasted and didn't look back. Right. It's kind of the right way to do it, I think. Is that right? I mean, that's what people say. Okay. I, I like a little toast. Okay. okay. I'll try that next back time. To the, back to the rapid fire. Okay. Favorite cookbook? Favorite cookbook. I have been loving my former colleague James Park's Chili Crisp. Love it. Love it. Favorite New York City restaurant? Probably North Dumpling on Essex Street. Mm-hmm. Favorite New York City bakery? Golden Steamer on Mott Street. Mm-hmm. Favorite New York City bar? I think that's probably going to be El Pinguino in Greenpoint. Mm. Okay, restaurant that you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant? Ooh. I know, it's a dreamy question. That's a great question. What could be in my neighborhood? You don't have to oh, move to the neighborhood. It just goes, it comes to your neighborhood. Oh, I totally know. Okay. I think it's got to be Marisco's El Submarino in Jackson Heights. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, a now-closed New York City establishment that you wish you could revive? Oh, my gosh. Uncle Boone's, for sure. That's where I had my birthday uh, in 2019, right before the pandemic, and that was my last time eating there. Mm. Miss it so much. A great answer. And to close, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat in real life? Ooh. I probably once a day, I think about the bacon... And eggs that are cooked in Howl's Moving Castle, you know, they ju- it's just like so perfectly over easy, the eggs. And then um, Lucifer the, or Calcifer, the little fire, like gobbles them up. I feel like he didn't even appreciate them. You would appreciate them. I would appreciate them. I'd name them after myself. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. Well, Luke, thanks so much for coming by. This was so fun. Oh, thanks, Eliza. Appreciate you having me.
Ravinder Bogle, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very excited to be chatting to you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's it's really an honor and, and exciting to talk to you. You're you're a, a great chef based in London. You've done television. You've done a show with Jay Rayner. We'll talk about that guy. And we'll go into your sensibility, um, you know, the what your food stands for. But first, how the hell has New York been? New York has been fast. I think fast is the word. Intense, fast, delicious. Actually, I've eaten some really delicious meals while I've been here. Um, But it's just great to be back. And the weather has been very kind, apart from we arrived last Thursday Mm -hmm. and then woke up very optimistically on the Friday morning thinking that we'd go out and get breakfast and walked out into completely apocalyptic weather. It was crazy. I've never seen rain like it. Um, But thankfully, it's cheered up and it's been really quite warm. It's been beautiful weather here since that crazy was apocalyptic. Um, Where have you eaten? Where's where's some spots? Well, I mean, of course, I ate at all the Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern because I was cooking there. Um, But Cosme has been my favorite meal here so so far. I was just blown away by the flavors. And I think we don't get really great Mexican food in in London. Um, There are a few, but not enough the way they are here. And Cosme really took my breath away. It's so fresh and delicious and addictive and Moorish. Yeah, the corn, the nixtamalization there and the way that they think about the tortillas and just all the corn is amazing. It's just incredible. Yeah. Any in America or in New York only foods that you sought out when you were here? Definitely Mexican food. I think it was like the first day I was like, right, Mexican food. Because like I said, we don't get a whole load of great Mexican food in London. So let me ask you about running a a restaurant in London right now. Um, I was just there in June and I've I've talked about the show. I I got to go to Brat, which was a highlight. Jolene, uh, Beagle Bake, Bagel Bake, whatever you want to call it. Amazing. I mean, London is so exciting. Tell me what's, what's it like right now running the restaurant? Are there any places that you want to shout out? Yeah, I mean, running a restaurant right now in London, I feel like it's a lot more optimistic than it was a few years ago. Of course, anyone who went through the pandemic, whatever industry you were in, it was a really, really hard time, a really terrifying time. You know, we, Nadim and I, my husband and I, we run the restaurant together and I remember getting to three years in and we were like, wow, we're about to have the best year yet. We've just broken into profit. We're about to do this amazing event with Salman Rushdie. You know, all these incredible things were coming together for us. And we were so excited. And I remember I commissioned an artist to make this sculpture in the restaurant of spring flowers because I was feeling particularly optimistic (laughs) And then by March, the government had mandated closures and we were in the middle of a pandemic and it was just really, really hard. And we didn't think that we were even going to make it through, but we did. And right now, I would say we're having a really great time. You know, things are still hard. Um, The cost of everything is crazy. You know, the cost of goods, um, rents, um, electricity, everything is really high. But there seems to be this hunger for pent up hunger for restaurants. So we're happily, you know, full most nights. Um, We're we're in a wonderful area called Marylebone, which is just, for, it's such a great neighborhood. We get such interesting people coming in to eat all the time. For me, it's like this kind of um, random sampling of humanity every time you walk hmm. up the stairs. And I think that's what I love about running the, the restaurant. You never know who's in or who you're going to meet, how your day is going to go. Um, but it it's really joyful right now. And I have a team... We've been open now. We've just celebrated our seventh birthday. We have a team of 24 people. Out of those 24, about 12 of us have worked together for six years. That's amazing to have half the staff so, be there from the, from the, yeah, from the jump. Yeah, so we're now getting ready for that next next thing, you know, what's next. And uh, we definitely have some exciting plans up our sleeve. I can't wait to hear about them. Now, you call your restaurant proudly inauthentic, which I think is really original. I don't think enough of that is said, like you're proudly inauthentic. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not proudly authentic. 
And so what is, for Jaconi, your restaurant, what does that mean exactly? So it was very difficult for us for a long time to coin what we did as a cuisine because I wish it could have been as easy as saying I run an Indian restaurant or an Italian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or pizza restaurant Mm -hmm. and it just wasn't that simple. What we do at Giacconi is immigrant food and for me that is for people who have the ache for what they've left behind and that longing and pining which is what I had when I came to England age seven And then the wonder of your new landscape and what happens when you reconcile those two things. And I think for immigrants, um, when you leave something behind, you become very precious about it. You want to preserve it. And I, in fact, I think with immigrants, the funny thing is it's always the food that's the last thing to go. You might lose your the way you dress or your language, but the food is what remains. And we hold on to it so possessively mm-hmm. in a way. But for me, I grew up in a very densely immigrant area and I became the product. And as I grew up, I was brought up by all those wonderful communities around me. I shopped at all those wonderful mini economies, you know, from the Chinese supermarket to the Turkish supermarket to the Iranian Mm -hmm. supermarket. And that, of course, fed into my food culture. So you weave together what you know with what's new. And in doing so, you're creating a completely new cuisine. And that's that's what I think immigrant food is. Yeah, well said. And let me ask you, what are some menu items at the restaurant that you feel reflects this this point of view, which I think is, is well articulated? It's common as well, but oftentimes restaurants aren't positioned this way. They're usually positioned, we're doing Carolyn cuisine, we're doing, you know, Tamil Nadu cuisine or et cetera. So what are some of the dishes just so we get a little food in the conversation? Um, so I think one that really is uh, the emblem of everything that we believe in at Jaconi, and we call ourselves a no-borders kitchen, and this really is that, is the prawn toast scotch egg with banana mm. ketchup and pickled cucumber. And when people ask us to describe it, we say it's like the bonnie love child mm. of a British scotch egg and a Chinese prawn toast. And when you bring them together, you're creating something that's better than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And we feel that actually it's that it's symbolic and it's political. And we're quite political in our food. We're basically saying when you bring cultures together, you're creating something that's better than the sum of their parts. And that is the power of immigrants and immigration Mm -hmm. and immigrant cuisine. Sounds so good, too. I'm just going (laughs) to say like a prawn toast done in a scotch egg. Scotch egg has got the the outer golden like crust to it, right? And this crust is extra special. So rather than just using breadcrumbs, what we do is we get those really spicy Thai prawn crackers. We make a crumb out of them and then we pane or coat the egg with those. So when you deep fry, the rice in the prawn cracker kind of puffs up and goes really, really crisp. So you get this off the Richter crunch <laughs> on the on the on the you know outside of the egg, and then you've got this very sweet, bouncy prawn mi- mixture. I love it. Um, and Ooh. then a soft, runny egg in the middle, served with banana ketchup. I love it. Delicious. It sounds so. Oh my god! You must good. come. I love that you also said off the Richter. That is like the greatest phrase I've never heard that in my life, and I'm going to use it forever. Language. It's an amazing thing. Let me ask you about TV. You've done a lot of food TV. You hosted a show with Jay Rayner. It's kind of like the London's most feared restaurant critic. That's and right. And you're a chef. And how does that work when you're a chef and you're doing a show with a feared critic? Yeah, I mean, you know, at that time, I was really just starting out. And I remember I was approached by Channel 4 who said, look, we're doing this show. We're looking for some sort of action-adventure cook who can travel to, like, all these parts of the world. And I'd just written a book called Cook in Boots, and I used to be a fashion and beauty writer. So I wasn't your typical Mm -hmm. choice for something like that. Um, And I just remember really wanting it because... I was so interested in telling stories about food. For me, that's what food is about. It's about stories. It's about humanity. It's about the people behind the food. And I was really passionate about telling those stories. And um, yeah. and I screen tested for it. And eventually, they gave they gave gave me the slot. And then they announced, "Oh, and your co-host is going to be Jay Rayner." And I remember being completely terrified <laughs> and feeling really out of my depth. But actually, Jay is wonderful. He is, I describe him as a mouth on legs. Mm -hmm. He really is that person. And 
I didn't have any idea at that time that I would open a restaurant. I had no ambition to open a restaurant. And when I was on set with Jay, he would eat the food that I was cooking and he would just sort of say, your flavors are so idiosyncratic. I have never tried this combination of flavors together before. And more people ought to eat your food. And if I were you, I would get serious and I would go and work in kitchens and learn the business of restaurants. And I'd never really had a mentor before. I came from a background where, you know, I'm the youngest of four sisters and my sisters were all married, you know, not really given an education, just married very off very early. Mm. And I had been told by my mother, you will cook for your husband and your children. And that is your parameter. You will not go beyond that. And to have this great man telling me, this is what you can do, I took it very seriously and I was very studious and I went into kitchens and I worked and I worked really hard. And then I got into, at that time, I think it was the luck of the draw as well, timing. The whole pop-up scene was like popping off in mm -hmm. London. And I was approached. Like 10 years ago, yeah. decade ago, yeah. And I was approached by a couple of people, Anna Hansen first off, who was the chef at the Modern Pantry and said, I have this 90 cover space. Why don't you come and take it over for one night? Mm -hmm. And I'd never cooked for more than 20 people. My and goodness, I, you did a 90 cover. And I did a 90 wow. cover night. In fact, we were oversubscribed. And I remember the exhilaration, that adrenaline high of service, you know, and I was addicted instantly. It was like... <laughs> the biggest high I'd ever had. And I loved it. And then I, someone who was cook, uh, someone who'd come as a guest that night worked with Mark Hicks, the British chef, Mark Hicks, mm -hmm. who had a restaurant in Selfridges. And she said, why don't you come and take over Selfridges? And the night I cooked at Selfridges, this guy approaches me and he's like, hi, I'm Mark Hicks's business partner. And I really think you have something. And do you want to start a conversation? No way, about that's a, where it started. A restaurant. Yeah, cool. And I was like, no, actually, no, I don't want to open a restaurant. And this conversation went on for six years until finally I had been doing a series of private catering and pop-ups. And actually, a lot of my clients for private catering ended up being chefs, which is such mm. a compliment. Um, so... I remember being taken aside one night. I was doing a six-week run at the South Place Hotel and Faye Mashler, who's a, another food critic, had been following my career and she took me aside and said, when are you going to stop being such an effing coward and just commit to a space of your own? And for me... All that a coward by a restaurant critic. It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, if you don't, you know, if you don't review me so negatively, <laughs> let's, let's, go, let's work on it. And, you know, I think it took another woman to yeah. ha have me. And it felt like this kind of Virginia Woolf-esque challenge, you know, this space of my own. And I was so tired at that point of dragging boxes of produce around on the London underground and being exhausted mm -hmm. and upturning bottles of olive oil on myself, you know, when I was tired. And I just thought, yeah, it's time. And then... By that point as well, I'd really birthed the idea and the philosophy of Jaconi and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to represent. And I'd really got it clear in my head. And then it was about finding a site, which took another two years mm -hmm. because I only wanted to open in Marylebone. And then that was it. We, you know, we found the site. Again, the chances of me getting that site, I'd been told by the landlord there was no way they were going to give it to me. I had no reputation, no operational experience, no money. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, you you know, they literally laughed me out of their offices. What changed it then? What, 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 like, what drew them to you eventually to sign the lease? Well, I think it was my bloody mindedness. Yeah. You know, I just wouldn't stop. I just kept saying to them, look... I'm not treading on anyone's toes. The concept I have is is so unique and you don't have another woman on your estate and, you know, mm. I have a story to tell and you have to listen and you have to hear me out. And I think I ended up pitching to them three times before they finally caved. And I remember they called me on, it was 2015 and it was the 23rd, the 23rd of December. So right before everyone was going off for Christmas 
And they said, you haven't got the deepest pockets, but you've got the biggest mouth. We're going to give you the sides. So, oh, what a good story. And, and, and it eventually you've opened, you've run there since in the same space, operated yeah, there? seven years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you, do you read food media in, in London? I, I always want to tap in with uh, with chefs and writers because, uh, you know, it's an amazing scene to cover. And, and it really didn't have a lot of coverage for a long time. It had critics, but... Now places like Vittles are open. And, yeah. And what do, you, what do you read? Do you know what? I have to say, I I I don't read a lot of food stuff mm-hmm. because I feel that um, restaurants and the food industry are so all-consuming that, and I love read uh, reading. I'm an avid reader. I'm you know I I studied English, so yeah. it's kind of my thing. So when I tr- when I read, I choose to read things like fiction because I. Otherwise, I would be fully consumed. There is so much out there. The it's volume is so great. And I just feel that I now want to focus. I've been, I love telling stories. I'm a, I'm a bit of a story writer. Even in my columns, I try and tell stories through food that are ultimately about food, but not about food, but about humanity. And that's kind of what's been interesting me. So I, I, I take a lot of time to read fiction. Yeah, and, fair enough. I like that. Yeah. And so I think that is kind of where, where I'm kind of trying to get yeah. to as well. Let me ask you about your new book, Comfort and Joy. It's plant-based and and it's it's not your general mission in life, but this book is ta- tackling plant-based cooking. What brought you to that that concept? So Comfort and Joy, it's a bit of a long story, but it started during the pandemic. And, um, you know, like so many restaurants we were mandated you know shut by the the government and i just think that hospitality is something that is so deeply entrenched in us as people that i found that after 2 weeks of sitting at home thinking what are we going to do and panicking that most of us just sort of thought hang on a minute we've got these fantastic kitchens and we should put them to use. And just because the government has shut our doors, it doesn't mean that our hospitality will stop. And there are people, there are vulnerable people in the city, hospitals, frontline workers who need feeding. So let's put our kitchens to work. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that time, we weren't allowed to have our teams in. So it was literally myself and my husband. We were going into the restaurant. We were cooking 60 meals a day for uh, King's College Hospital. A dear friend of mine is a doctor there. And when I heard what they were going through, the hours they were doing, I was just, I just wanted to do anything I was could. Was that supported by the government? Were they paying you to do that? Or was that just out of your own pockets? That was out of our own wow. pockets at that time. Um, so we uh, we were just cooking and um, a lot of our uh, guests and regulars and friends um, donated money to, for us to buy ingredients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was such a lovely community effort. And so many people in our industry did that. And that's what I think is beautiful about our industry. And I remember saying to my husband at the time a couple of things, one of what which was, wow, you know, hospita- uh, hospitals are just such international communities. And yet when you go to the hospital cafe, all you can get is a sandwich or like fish and chips. Mm-hmm. And for all these people who are from all over the world working in restaurants, I want them to have a sense of comfort and home. And so I'm going to cook these like vegetarian, um, globally inspired meals. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully people will t- taste home, you know, for all those people who are spending 15 hours a day yeah. working in a hospital, being away from their families. Some of them were staying away from their families because they were at such high risk with COVID. And um And then I said, you know, all people need right now is comfort and joy and something about it just stuck. And it was really the first time I'd had off from running the restaurant to really sort of think and reminisce. And I started thinking about my grandfather a lot. And his story is extraordinary. I mean, it's like an epic. So he was this man who was born in India, in the north of India, and wanted a better life and better opportunities. So he ran away from home, ended up in Bombay with his brother. They got on a migrant boat sailing for 26 days to Kenya, where Mm -hmm. apparently there were opportunities. Something went badly wrong with the ship. And this is, you know, I can't imagine the hardships they would Mm -hmm. have faced, starvation, bodies being thrown overboard. 
And they ended up back in Bombay and wow. his brother was like, I'm never doing that trip again. Yet my grandfather, this incredible pioneer, gets back on this boat, takes a voyage in the dark, ends up in Kenya. You know, wow. this is a time where Kenya then was still a British colony. There were racial divides, language barriers, alienation, poverty. He faced it all, yet he spent all of his time falling so deeply in love with this beautiful, alluvial, benevolent soil that just seemed to give and give. And he bought a little plot of land and he began to, um, you know, plant. And as I was growing up, I just witnessed him on this shamba, uh, the allotment. And to see this spiritual relationship he had with the land and the love that ebbed between him and the land was just such a gorgeous experience. And to see someone who had come from such scarcity and his gratitude for... And what, will. Yeah. And will. I mean, getting exactly. back on that boat is just, it's a real brassy moment. Exactly. And to see just the gratitude he had, I think he said thank you a million times a day mm -hmm. to Providence, you know, to this invisible force yeah. of nature that was giving him this 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 joy. And he his philosophy was just beautiful because he would pick up as something as simple as an onion and he would say, this is a miracle because this thing has withstood pests, blight and bad weather. Mm -hmm. And yet it comes to our table. We can cook with it and we can share what we we cook with it with the, with the, those that we love and i think we have become so disassociated from where our food comes from that this book was this manifesto of celebrating the joy of the plant kingdom the vegetable kingdom and saying that there are all these wonderful things that you can do and why should we only reserve our love and tenderness and care for a chop or a steak when actually mm. I come from a culture where vegetables have always been at the centre of the table, where vegetables have been the whole meal and there are so many ways to enjoy them. And I want, to, I want to share that with people. I want to share how you can take something as unsexy as a turnip and do something by adding a friction of spices to it and doing something magical and ending up with something yeah. that is has gone from ordinary to extraordinary. It's a, it's a great story, Ravinder. I thank you for sharing your family story and, and how uh, this will to, uh, from India to, to Kenya of your grandfather has really informed, it seems like, your life, obviously, but your your spirit with cooking. And are there, are there recipes, um, in a sense, uh, from a place, or is it really as varied as you explained? I think it, it that is how I cook. Yeah. You know, I cook. I'm an immigrant. My sensibility is a very immigrant uh, you know, style of cooking. I am a Londoner. I am exposed to all yeah. these, and I travel a lot, so I'm exposed to flavors from around the world all of the time, and I'm excited to embrace them. And and yeah. and I also think it comes from, you know, my style of cooking is also very maternal. So the maternal cook is the cook who has this um, strong intuition. The interplay between you and the ingredient is like this really mm -hmm. intuitive one. And because I grew up in a kitchen surrounded by these women who just knew which flavors went together with what, um, my nose as well, because I grew up around so many spices, is attuned almost like a bloodhound to flavors and scents. And I instinctively know what flavors are going to go with what. And I think people say this at the restaurant, like there's a there's a recipe in the book for um, char-grilled peaches with whipped tofu and a Thai basil gremolata. And I promise you make it. It's very easy. It's a 15-minute yeah, recipe. Yeah, it sounds no cool as hell. It sounds really, really smart. But there's something about the aniseed of basil mm -hmm. next to the sweetness of a peach that somehow makes the peach taste even more of itself yeah. than you thought was possible. I love that. It's like even if they're out, out of season with the grilling, it's going to work really well. Exactly. I love that. On this is taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Ravinder, are you ready? I am ready. Uh, the best American breakfast food. 
pancakes. I mean, slabs of carbohydrate. Who can resist? Oh, my gosh. Do you have a favorite style or flavor of pancake? Oh, I love, um, I don't know if they're so American, though, but like ricotta hot cakes. Oh, definitely. Oh, very American. Very Italian, but also very American. The best British breakfast food. Best British book breakfast food, I'd say, is a full English. You know, the sizzle of the promise yeah. and the sizzle of bacon and sausages and eggs in a pan is is really kind of um, welcoming, I'd say. <laughs> but actually, another tradition that I have is a, a Punjabi breakfast on a Sunday, which is a similar sizzle, but it's a paratha. Yeah. And because I cook in such a cross-cultural way, so in the Jaconi cookbook, there are kimchi parathas. So parathas are this sort of flatbread. Yeah. And Sounds we good. stuff them with normally with potatoes or cauliflower, but these are stuffed with kimchi and and, and cheese with a fried egg on that top. That sounds extremely good. Wow. I'm I'm really, really fascinated by this Uh it's like a pajin. It's like a Korean-style pancake, but but with uh, different carbohydrate, different bread. Mm-hmm. The best dessert? Tiramisu, every single time. Mm. And there is one that I dream of forever, and it was um, made, uh, it's it's in Cortona in Italy, which is a restaurant on the sort of Tuscan-Umbrian borders uh, called Trattoria Dardano. And I think I went there for a week and I ate at that restaurant four times uh, while I was there and by the end he knew that I loved his tiramisu so much that he just bought it to me in a whole bowl (laughs) and left the whole bowl at the table and just said knock yourself out oh it's so cool (laughs) Um, but you know it was that kind of dreamy tiramisu that is so light and bubbly and has no shape or form it just sort of slops on your plate and it's just delicious it doesn't have to be pretty to be honest Mm -hmm. I love that tip too of if you find your enjoying a meal on vacation you don't need to go to the other place keep going back yeah exactly great great call your favorite cookbook of all time uh, my favorite cookbook of all time is probably Mother Joffrey's Eastern Vegetarian Cooking. I just think she was so forward thinking. Um, I think she had a lot of trouble as well being sort of pigeonholed as just an Indian yeah. cook and cookery writer. But Eastern Vegetarian Cooking, she was writing about, you know, Szechuan cuisine and Turkish cuisine and Indian cuisine and regional Indian cuisine. It's just such a smart book. It's mm-hmm. a Bible for me. Is there a recent favorite cookbook discovery that you have? I do, and that is by my friend Jeremy Lee, and it's called Cooking Simply and Well for One or Many. And when you get to know Jeremy, he is this complete, charming, completely unique man. And the writing in the book is so sharp and witty and fun. And there, there are aphorisms that only Jeremy could come up with. He describes a, a, a particular pie; it's a leek, a leek pie or something. And he he says it has the the Presbyterianism of a leek pie. <laughs> and I just think it's a very it's a Jeremy good turn of phrase. Yeah, a couple more. Your favorite vegetable? Favorite vegetable changes with the seasons. Right now, I'm loving corn. All yeah. things corn. Late season for us, and it's it's really. Still very good right now. It's still very good. We just, um, so for my pop-up at the Gramercy Tavern, uh, we did a recipe from the book, which is a hot and sour sweet corn risotto. Mm -hmm. And it is this, and everyone loved it. So it's this risotto cooked very much in the Italian tradition. So you start by sweating onions with some chili and some garlic. And then you go in with your carnaroli rice. But rather than just using a vegetable stock, I make a hot and sour broth in the Thai style and then sort of start spooning that in. And then in goes some fresh corn, some corn puree and a lime leaf butter at the end. And so you have all those kind of wonderful aromatics of Thailand, the ones that make you feel very well and nourished, but in the sort of comfort of an Italian risotto. And it's a dream dish. Well, Mike Anthony, was he... he into that one? I, he I loved yeah, it. Yeah, I can imagine. Actually, it sounds great. He was just, I think he just loved the dishes. We, lo- I loved working with him and his team. They're just such professionals, but yeah. the kind of respect, the curious intelligence of his team, you know, asking all the right questions, but just the way they embraced. I mean, Mike and I were saying our cooking is so different in so many ways, but also our sensibility is a very casual one. It's about mm-hmm. making the person who eats it feel nourished, well, taken care of. Your favorite sandwich? 
favorite sandwich is uh, something that I still dream of all the time. It is a leftover sandwich. So my mother used mm. to make this um, cauliflower curry and she would make a lot of it. And then when it was left over the next day, it would go into a Breville toaster mixed with cheese, normally mozzarella, like yeah. melty mozzarella and a sharp cheddar. And because the cauliflower curry had turmeric in it, it would seep through and and dye the bread sort of this lovely amber golden color. Mm -hmm. And it would go so crisp and she would brush it ghee. So clarified butter. So it would go super crisp. And Love it that. was just with the with these two types of cheese with the sharp yeah, cheddar. Exactly. It sounds like an amazing It's way an to amazing use the sandwich. Let's shout out your friend who uh, who reached out to me and, and made this happen. I just want to. He's Sham Sandu. I yeah, adore Shams. him. He is He's not just my friend. He's my adopted brother, and I just adore him. Well, thanks for listening to the show, Shams, and, and for making this beautiful introduction. I, I loved talking to you. Ravinder Bogle, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening. <laughs>